Hello, everybody. You're listening to you're listening to the Angel Nears podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Jordan Rittenauer, CEO and co-founder of ClearLaw, a contract review and management company. It helps businesses close deals faster by using ML or machine learning to surface contract risk and provide a roadmap for closing deals. Today, we're going to talk with Jordan about various aspects of building international remote teams. But before that, Jordan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Awesome. So Jordan, you are a co-founder and CEO. I think you should be able to do this in your sleep. Can you give us an elevator pitch for ClearLaw? Yeah, well, you did a pretty good job of introducing ClearLaw in your intro, but uh, I would say we focus more on contract review and acceleration rather than the management piece. There's there's a lot of providers out there that do management. So really what we're focused on is helping sales and legal teams close those deals faster and close revenue faster. So a lot of companies have their standard templates. Maybe sometimes they get pushback from their customer. Or maybe sometimes they're forced to work off of the customer paper. And so what we're doing is bringing the data science that, that most teams, whether you're in marketing or sales, have had for years. And we're helping the reviewer of that contract really make more informed decisions. So if they do see something that they're getting pushback on and they want to know where they've seen that before or how their team has reacted to that kind of language change in the past, then we can provide the data for them based off of their, their previous decision-making. And it's really eliminating the need for, for these teams to recreate the wheel. So we're seeing faster closing times and we're seeing much more standardization across the organization as uh, they're using data rather than kind of however they're feeling in that moment about a, a particular legal term. Thorough answer. It's kind of what I expected. But let's let's talk about how you found this problem and then came up with a solution. Tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe about your education background, and then how you kind of encountered this problem that that gave birth to the solution that is ClearLaw. I, I went to UCLA for undergraduate. I think did you go to UCSD? Yes, that's right. Cool. So we're we're in the same system here. After graduating, I joined the US Army. I was there at a time when we were fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, so I wanted to serve. So I was an officer in the U.S. Army for about six years, first as an infantry officer, and then uh, later switched over to military intelligence and got to deploy to Afghanistan in 2010 and eventually just decided it wasn't something I saw myself doing for 20 years or for a full career. And law school had always been on my mind, I guess. You know, since I was a little kid, my parents thought I'd probably become a lawyer because I like to argue a lot. So I did. I did end up going to law school. Uh, luckily, I, I got into Stanford, which is a great school, and ended up applying for the Graduate School of Business as well. So I ended up staying there for four years, a lot of time in the institution, but got a, a JD MBA, and that was really my first exposure to what lawyers do. A lot of people come from backgrounds where either their parents are lawyers or they work at a law firm, maybe as a paralegal and then go to law school. I didn't really have that. So my my summer internships really exposed me to what practicing the law more on a corporate setting 
looked like. So I was I summered at uh, Cooley, which is a global law firm, but very big here in the Bay Area, focused on technology. And I also interned on the legal team at, at Palantir, which is, for those that don't know, is a big tech startup that's about to go public, we think. And I, I got to do a lot of contract review and contract drafting. And I kind of experienced the problem firsthand where I was making decisions and didn't have a lot of context or experience and was forced to manually review uh, 10 documents for every one that I, I was actually working on to kind of get a sense and a feel for here's what this organization likes to do. So, you know, it was something that was in the back of my mind, like there seems like there's a problem here. I and mean, I think the light bulb, so they say, went off when I, I had actually been working on a deal. We were going to buy something. I won't go into the details of who it was, but I'd made some very minor changes to their standard sales contract that was fit in line with Palantir's terms. And then I forgot about it. I sent it off to them, forgot about it. I actually ended up leaving that, going back to Stanford Law School for my second year. And uh, I got a call from the sales guy like two months after I'd already been back in school. And they said, hey, legal got through the red lines you sent over. Everything looks good. Like, let's see if we can close this deal out. It's like, holy crap. That was like, I've, I've been back at school for two months. Like your one job is to sell these these widgets, let's say. And yet it took probably three months to, to just review some very minor changes. So it seemed like it, was a, it wasn't just a, a me problem. It was probably an organizational problem across business. So a friend of mine introduced me to, to one of his friends who was in the computer science department at Stanford, and he was focused on AI, natural language processing. And so we got to talking about this issue, and he was interested in in working on a, a solution for, for legal because it's a really interesting language. You know, it has a set. There's a universe of language, a body of language that makes it fun to play with in the NLP context rather than just entirety of, of, the hu- of human language. It's, it's limited. So there's some really cool things you can do right now. We're not talking about five years from now or 10 years from now when, whenever AI totally takes over and becomes our overlords, but stuff that we can make a big difference on right now. So we started playing around with some ideas about how to help folks make better and faster contracting decisions. And we were still in school, so we had a lot of time to experiment and really dig deep on the technology. So what we've come up with is is a unique solution that really makes use of organizations' historical data, their historical decision-making, and surfaces suggestions based off of that, rather than us trying to force them down a a gospel or playbook of of what we think they should do. It's really based off their own decision-making. So... We, we worked on the tech side and then we continued to conduct user interviews and kind of get a sense for, for how people viewed this problem across an organization. So it's not just the legal team that works on contracts, but you know the C-suite has to be aware of stuff, the finance team, sales obviously cares about the contract because once that's closed, they can get paid. Um, and it really impacts everyone in the organization. So I, I, I could go on longer uh, and talk about how most economic activity is based on contract, at least in the United States, but maybe we can, I'll I'll pause there and see if you have any questions. Yeah, probably a good place to put a pin in the conversation. A lot to get to there. I'm not going to be able to address everything, but I will say from what you said, you know, at the top of the show, we always say we're excited to talk to experienced operators in the Silicon Valley coming from a school like Stanford and then UCLA before that. Clearly, that's who we're talking about. So real excited to have you on the show today. 
to talk about remote teams, but let's do it. So you have this company, this product you're building. Tell me about the decision to do it remotely and uh, the logic behind that. Well, I guess there's a few reasons. First, our our very first fundraising round was was not large. So we we raised an angel or friends and family round, and we really thought we could get a product into the market quickly, and we didn't want to raise a bunch of money and then grow this huge team, very expensive in the Bay Area, before we really knew if this had legs. So we raised we raised a small friends and family round and, and got to work building the product. This is something that, this is an area where people really need to see it to believe it. I think it's a kind of a try before you buy type situation. And not, not saying it has to be fully polished or whatever, and an MVP can work, but lawyers, attorneys tend to be skeptical. And so they want to see how it's going to work. And I think in a lot of a lot of cases, they've they've been told AI is coming for their jobs for, for a very long time, and are they've been disappointed by by what what comes out. So we wanted to do this as as cost effectively as as possible, and we were fortunate that one of our angel investors introduced us to. Actually, he ended up being another angel investor who helps find Silicon Valley level talent, but either in Eastern Europe or, or sometimes in Western Europe. And so you can do it much more cost effectively because as we all know, the Bay Area is very expensive and you're competing with the likes of Google and Facebook for talent. So it, it's just a more cost effective way when the cost of living in some other places is is a lot lower. So that played a big role. And also just being able to get something up and running quickly, that that played a big role as well. Let's pause right there. Because I think this problem that you encountered is something that's probably pretty common within the Silicon Valley. You have this idea for a solution to a problem, and then you need to come up with some kind of minimum viable product. But to do that, there's all sorts of costs involved. So how do you build something when the costs are high, but you want to maintain quality, but you might not have you know the resources right now to go out and get everything you need at the rate that you're going to get it in the valley. So let's let's take a step back and talk about this in a broader sense. Like why do you think this problem exists in the Silicon Valley of uh, of a talent shortage because I think I think we can agree that there is some kind of maybe not a talent shortage, maybe it's the cost is too high and the supply and demand is a little messed up. What what do you think causes that problem? Well, I I think for markets to be efficient, you need the, the freedom of movement for labor, capital, and technology. And capital is really easy to, to move freely, but labor is, is more difficult. So, you know, there's a lot of really talented individuals that could probably make a lot of money in, in Silicon Valley, but they may not be able to get a visa to come in. And I'm not making a political judgment about whether that's good or bad. It's just, I think, the way things are. So with labor markets being inefficient, it presents an opportunity for people that are in the Bay Area to make make a lot more money than they otherwise would if you know we had a global ability to, to work from everywhere. And maybe we're starting to see that change and shift in a meaningful way. Can you tell me about your experience of finding this international remote team and yeah, your experience so far of, of what it's been like to, to run that from where you're located? I think it is a, a struggle for for a lot of folks. Yeah, I have people asking me all the time, or I get, I'm on an email listservs with other founders, and 
they're looking for a particular thing and looking for contract work or maybe an overseas full-time employee because they know it is going to be a little more cost effective or they're, they're hoping it will be. And, you know, a lot of people have been burned because it's really hard to know if the person you're working with, whether they're in, you know, Spain or India, could be could be a lot of places. But if you don't have the face-to-face communication or someone on your team that's highly technical and can kind of check on what they're doing, it's it's hard for for people on the outside to necessarily know if if what you're getting is is good quality and scalable and gonna you know built to last. So we and we did get burned at one point. So we started working with a couple folks who had come recommended through through someone else, and really they they didn't fulfill on their end of the bargain. So when we first met one of our angels who angel investors who offered to help us find talent, I. I think we were rightfully skeptical of uh, that situation occurring again. So we, I guess what you'd call it is we dated for a while and we got to know him better over a period of a few months and and got to talk to some people he'd worked with in the past and folks that he didn't necessarily recommend we talk to. So, so doing some back channel references and then also doing like a trial period. So we... He, he found us a, a couple folks that wanted to join the team and we did a little test run. And obviously it wasn't just makeup work. It was real work that needed to be done. But we used that as an evaluation period to see what was being produced and how, how we could work together. And then since then, you know, the team's grown. So we've been happy with the, the situation we have now. And it's been almost two years now that we've been working together with, with some of these folks. So it's, it's overall been a, a great experience. Can you tell me about how you've how you've solved some of the challenges that come from remote work, namely the the time zone issue, and then how communication is is challenging when you're not meeting in an office? How do you have you experienced those kind of challenges of remote work, and then how do you sort of handle it? Yeah, I mean there are definitely well there are pros and cons, but but definitely um, I'm skeptical that. The entire world will will go remote. I know everyone's kind of excited about maybe being able to work from every anywhere with COVID, and maybe work from home is here to stay. I think there are issues not having face to face communication and just being around the environment where everyone's kind of working together and working towards the same goal. It makes it hard to have impromptu conversations, get on the page same page quickly, and the time zone challenge you mentioned is real. So. You have to be very deliberate about your your meeting schedule and when it's going to work for for everybody, mm-hmm. and maintain that schedule. And I think what we learned very quickly was documentation was going to be even more important for us. I think it's important for everybody, but when you're working with folks whose first language is not English, you want to make sure that things that are said in a meeting or over a Slack call or a Zoom call are not misinterpreted. So we do a really good job of trying to capture meeting notes and documenting everything in whether it's Jira or Confluence. That's our our system of records. So there's no confusion about, oh, well, we discussed this at the last meeting. Don't you remember? It's like, no, I, I don't remember that. And that that's really helped us play a role. So or improve our system. I think for how early stage we were when we first started, we had a very robust system very early on about tracking work and and measuring results 
whether it's in Jira or, or some other platforms to make sure that, you know, we're staying on track and, and making progress. Yeah, I, I think the no office challenge is a very real one. I see the office is kind of the heart of a company and that schedule that you're on of a nine to five, while it seems a little outdated, it does kind of provide this like steady heartbeat day after day where you know people are going to come in and they're going to come out and it just gives this kind of regularity and schedule to things that is hard to replicate with a remote team where, where everyone's international. But let's, let's talk about what, what constitutes an effective remote team. How do, you, how do you build an effective team? And then are there any clues to tell you you, you have it once you, once you do? Is there any way to know that you do have it once you have it? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So so just to follow up on seeing the the office as the heart mm-hmm. of the organization, I I think that's true, and it's interesting because people used to have to work in the same location, right? If they're going to the factory, like all the equipment was there, that was the only place they could really do their job. And now it's like, well, all I need is my computer and maybe uh, some headphones, and I can work from anywhere. But at the same time if you're thinking about maybe some factory work, people had more of their specific tasks. They knew what they were going to do on a daily basis in a way that maybe they didn't need to rely on others as much. And and maybe that's simplistic, but I, I really do think there is value in, in being in the same office and being able to communicate more easily. So what we did was Pong, my co-founder and I, we got everyone that was remote together and we worked in the same office for 10 days, all in the same room. And it really helped us to build camaraderie, get to know people on a, at a, a deeper level. We had a karaoke night, which was a lot of fun. I mean, I think it's important to see people outside of the, the nine to five, just to get a sense of where they're coming from. Just for context, just for context, this sounds like it was pre-COVID. Oh yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. The anti-Covidian times, yeah, and and obviously, yeah, that's a lot, lot harder to do now. But I noticed after that that people were much more willing to speak up, raise issues, reach out with questions if there was some confusion. So maybe you know I don't have hardcore data on on this, but the feeling was different. the The progress we were making progress more quickly. And communication was just a lot more smooth. And so I could tell a difference. My co-founder could tell a difference. I think the whole team could really feel like, okay, we're on the same page about what we want to achieve, why we're doing this, and uh, let's, let's move faster to get it done. Yeah, I think what you're, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's hard to put your finger on exactly you know, what the outcome of a, of a 10-day team event like that really is, but it's hard to put your finger on, but it's like more open communication, better feedback between parties. And you kind of, again, you know it when you have it, but it's hard. It's, it's, it can be difficult to try and achieve that. You know, this is all anecdotal, but the, the initiative, we, we saw our team taking more ownership over, Hey, I think this may be a problem. Is this something we can find out from customers or what do you think? Like, is this a way we can improve the product in a way that'll matter? Whereas and before, I don't know that 
everyone felt that level of ownership. And it's not like there wasn't any, but it was just like the next level of, okay, yeah, I, I understand what we're, we're doing here. And let me, let me take more initiative to, to make things better. I guess the key, the key takeaway is like kind of to, to level. Yeah, I think when you are in the same room and you're looking eye to eye, you might be the CEO, I might be the intern, but when we're in the room together, we're both human. And you know, when we're actually problem solving and doing stuff like that, it kind of evens out the playing field. And then I might be more willing to approach someone who's above me on the corporate ladder or, or vice versa. And I don't know exactly how to capture that during lockdown and quarantine, but there are ways to kind of to simulate that line. So I leave that challenge for the Angel News listeners, but that's that's what we got. Let's move on. Let's talk about building a remote team. How many how many professionals do you need on your remote team? I, I guess that's probably at a per need basis, but tell me about how you were, how you built your team. How did you decide like how many developers you would need, how many professionals you would need on your team, and then how you went about kind of building that remote team? I think it is very company specific, and I can't say we got it right at first. I would say a couple things that probably are more generally applicable is if you're if you're building a remote team, you really don't want to have just one person off on an island. So whether that's geographically, or maybe it can be technical skills area based, mm-hmm. But I, I think about it as this, it, the same goes for building a sales team or so I've been told by all the experts. I can't say that's our area of, of deep domain knowledge as we're just getting started. But you don't want to just hire one salesperson or one SDR. You, you want to hire two so you have a baseline of, of kind of understanding, okay, are we having problems because this is not a very quality candidate or... Are we having problems because we don't have product market fit? So if you have more than one, you can got, kind of get a better sense of, of where the problems lie and get baseline understanding of what performance level you expect. And I think the same goes for back-end developers or front-end. It's good to have people checking other their colleagues' work, whether it's a formal process like code review, you're making sure your, your code is of a high quality, um, but also just to, to bounce ideas off of. and not let people feel like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, or I'm not sure what the right direction is, but I, I've got to figure this out on my own. So we we started with really two two front end and, and two back end to get going just to to have that sort of that sanity check on on what high quality looked like. Yeah, that makes sense. It's always two heads is better than one. What is your expected timeline to to sort of complete the hiring? Did you have a a, a deadline for building that remote team. And this is kind of an ongoing process when it comes to startups because people do come and go. But as you're building that initial team, how, how much time would you expect to spend on the hiring process uh, start to finish? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I can only tell you how, I mean, we're always hiring and looking for, for, for more folks to join. So it's kind of never ending in my book. Mm-hmm. But what we base it around was, okay, we want to release the product, at least an MVP by this time period. And here's our estimate of, of what needs to get done. So, and here's our budget. So here's, here's what we can afford and what we think is realistic. So I would say it was more driven by the product needs rather than just a specific, like, Oh, we want to, we want to grow the team and, and be more efficient. It was, it was more time to a, a, the product deadline that we had set for ourselves. The Bay area is pretty famous for 
quirky hiring practices, I might call it. <laughs> there, there's definitely a range of hiring practices, and, and it's something that you know companies like Google and Apple are actually kind of known for at this point. Uh, I'd say it's kind of a thing here in the Silicon Valley. But when you're hiring for remote teams, I wonder, you know, is that different? Did you approach it differently? And you actually have experience getting hired, right? Because you were working, you worked as, at, while you were in school uh, at Stanford. So you probably saw hiring uh, from the, you know, I'm trying to get employed end of things. And now you're hiring from the other side. Would you say that, that there are a lot of differences? Are they pretty much similar? Uh, what would you say? Well, I, I don't know that my my hiring experience, I don't know if it's representative or not. Maybe it, maybe it is, but it's funny because the two civilian jobs I had at Palantir and at Cooley, it's very much culture and just a fit. Like if they think you can, can come in and, and be productive, there wasn't a lot of technical aspects to the interview. No one asked me what my understanding of some SEC regulation was. I, I think they know like, hey, they're law students. They kind of don't know anything yet. We got to train them. So let's just see who who looks coachable and, and trainable and we'd enjoy working with. And that's totally different from, from my experience in the military. You know, in the military, you get assigned. So some big HR department's just deciding, hey, you're going to go here. You're going to work for this commander. Don't screw it up because the commander can fire you, but it's kind of a rare case. And a lot of times they've just got to suck it up if... Uh, if they're not getting along with subordinates or they're not productive, it's, you know, it's a little harder to, to let people go. So how that differs from, from our hiring process is we do have a big technical component and making sure that technical skills are, are proficient. There's also a big, you know, it's really important for folks to speak English because that's the language we're, we're working in. And, and Pung and I, you know, Pung speaks more languages than me, but we, we do all our business in, in English. So that needs to be really important. And then there's also an aspect that we're looking for of people always say, be a self-starter. And I guess that's a little harder to test for, but that's why I think it's good to do, you know, some trial periods if you can make sure that folks are taking the initiative and want to communicate regularly regularly and openly because when you're when you're working remote and you have a remote team accountability can be a little hard so you need mature responsible individuals that are up to the challenge of if they're working from an office or, or from home it's even harder but they've got to be able to deliver when when they say they will so that's kind of how we're looking at it and i imagine you know a lot of silicon valley companies are, are looking at the same things, but there probably is a little bit more of the, the, the fun aspect or, or culture fit for, for certain things. It, my fiance used to work at Google and she's laughing now because she thinks one of Google's advantages in hiring is that it's actually a really fun place to work. Like people wake up and are excited to go work with their friends and they have, you know, all their meals cooked and they have the gym there and there's all this, this fun stuff and activities going on. And so it'll be interesting, interesting to see how that changes now that people are, are working remote. It, are people going to be less attracted to those types of companies if, if really they're just working from their, their dining room? It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I guess we're all kind of in, in wait and see mode. I, I think you said something key there, and that is, you know, where these people are doesn't matter as much. And, you know, now that, now that we're hiring for international remote teams, where the employee is located is actually 
not as important, right? So the question of where is actually really interesting. And I want to ask that where specifically do you look for candidates and does geography matter? And I am, I am kind of asking like, you know, are you on Reddit posting, Hey, we need a uh, backend infrastructure guy. Are you doing it on Facebook with your Facebook statuses? I doubt it. That's kind of a silly suggestion. Um, but yeah, where do you source candidates? So two things on that. I, I think part of, I'll disagree with you a little bit that it doesn't matter where internationally. There are things to be aware of, especially for us dealing with contracts, you know, sensitive data. We've got to be really careful about where customer data is stored. And obviously that, that all stays in the United States. But we've had customers who may be a little concerned about having remote teams, whether they're not allowed to to see customer data anyway, but you know, that can be a concern. So I think there may be a little bit of an issue for some folks in that, in that area, but what we are looking at just like Silicon Valley, there's a lot of talent here. And a lot of people think that's because we have such great universities here between Cal and Stanford. So yeah, there's, there's good universities that create, you know, have good engineering programs, good CS departments and you can find those all over the world. So where we have found or where we have found success locating talent have been in some overseas towns that, you know, have great technical universities and they've had great technical universities for, for generations. So, you know, some of our, our employees are like the, you know, third generation engineers um, Mm -hmm. from their family. So that, that's something that I, I think, um, improving access to all over the world is something that's it's beneficial for everybody but that's kind of what we're looking for can you tell me a little bit more about what you're looking for in hiring i know you mentioned coachability before and i think that really stands out but is there anything else that you really look for in an interview in a a candidate and does it does it vary depending on like the department if you're going to be on sales or if you're going to be an engineer yeah, I think it varies if you're looking for for sales versus versus engineering. You want to see that they're both proficient in kind of what their area of expertise is at, is and mm-hmm. so you may focus more on certain personality traits, I guess, for sales versus engineering, but at the same time, you know, everyone's on on the team and you want to have a good team culture. So it's it's not like you can just hire someone toxic just because they're an all-star technically. So yeah, coachability is a, is a big one for me. And also someone that's displayed some level of resiliency, whether, you know, it's something that happened in school or maybe a, an earlier career. I think uh, it's really valuable to see people that have, have struggled with something and, and have, overcome it or, or faced adversity before and, and hear about how they handled it because building a, a startup is not easy. And so you want to, you want to have people on board that are, are going to be able to adapt and overcome and say in, in the army, you know, uh, drive on to the objective, but really reach the goal that you're set, you've set. And regardless of the cir- situation or circumstances, really keep a, a positive attitude about it. Awesome answer. So once you've made your hires and you know, you've employed these people, how do you onboard them to ensure that they understand your organization, that they're going to fit in and that they're going to accelerate when they, when they get there? It is probably harder with a, a remote team because you don't 
have all this built up environment where they're just kind of immersed in it. So this is where I, I come back to documentation and we have a, an onboarding, I don't want to call it a portal, but it's a, a series of wiki pages and a knowledge base of you start small and here's here's the most important things that you need to know in the first week and then second week, like here's where you should be at. But following this this program and having everybody contribute to it, especially right after they went through it, like, hey, you've been here two months now and I know you did the all the onboarding work that we that we set up for you, but what's missing? Like, what do you wish you had known week one or week two or at the end of month one? So it's growing while sometimes we, we also trim it down, we tighten it up, but keeping it up to date and, and maintained is, is a big part of it for us just to, to make sure that everybody does stay on the same page and get not just understanding what their day-to-day life is like, whether they're focused on back-end development or maybe product design, but really understanding the overall company and, and who the customers are. I think that's something that we probably didn't do a phenomenal job at in the very beginning, but mm-hmm. everybody can kind of contribute in a more effective way if they know you know who your, your customer customers are, who your personas are, and what their needs are. So we've really, we've tried to get better at that and make sure that there's a good knowledge base across the entire company. Right. And just like you said, how you hire for adversity, it's important to understand that, you know, when you're starting a startup, you're going to not do everything perfect, especially the first time you do it. So uh, something like onboarding is definitely like an iterative process that uh, takes sharpening once you once you start. Yeah, I was thinking about Palantir's program is really good. I, I didn't do any work for like the first week. It was literally just watching videos and reading wiki pages which I, at the time I was like, wait, what, this is weird. Like, when am I actually going to do anything? But it actually it makes, I think, new employees much more productive quickly in the long run. If that's an, that might be an oxymoron quickly in the long run. But it made me feel a part of something that was bigger. And I understood kind of what everybody else was doing, even if, and, and what the lingo was, even if I didn't know what exactly what their day to day looked like, it, that really helps make you feel like you're a part of the team. It's effective. It is. Yeah, it's effective. We're talking about remote teams. What are your methods for keeping the remote team connected? You've already mentioned a few tools that I'm familiar with, namely Jira, Confluence, and I think Zoom and Slack are a given. Are those the only things you need to start a company? Or do you have, have you had any other tools that are, like, are must-haves? Oh, man, that's, I, that's all that comes to mind immediately. I like doing stuff in... Um, Google Sheets or Google Slides as well. So just quick brainstorming sessions. I like throwing thoughts on there. I don't know if that's best practice. I think it's key. I actually think what you're getting at is a challenge that I have not figured out myself, which is the the whiteboarding challenge. I know there's good software out there, and I'm still trying to figure out how to use my Apple Pencil effectively. But one of the things in college that I found was really useful for sol- for problem solving was to have a whiteboard. And I think uh, Zoom does have some annotate functions, but just a place where the team remotely can kind of gather around a whiteboard and remotely all write by hand instead of by type would be uh, would be a, a really useful tool. But have not figured out that out quite yet. Still working on that. No, we haven't either. And I've heard good things about Miro. I gave that a try. I think you're right. What we're missing is that really like live uh, interaction where everyone's viewing the same whiteboard and able to 
to mark it up that that's hard to to replicate. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, we'll we'll figure out that we'll figure that problem out another day. Uh, let's talk about evaluating performance. When everyone's remote, you know, I think we're all going to be evaluated based on your production. So how do you do it? How do you evaluate performance of your remote team? That's an interesting question because that's something that, it, especially it's it's difficult for me sometimes when so much of our team is is deep engineering and and machine learning, and that's not my area of expertise. So I've, I've leaned very heavily on, our whole team has leaned very heavily on Pong, our CTO, to, to evaluate performance and understand how, how things are going. I think something that I, that I can do is one-on-one conversations with, with folks and see how they're, they're thinking about their performance and help them set goals regularly, not just, Hey, here's the next three months. Here's, here's what I want to accomplish, but also like, where do you want to be in five years? Like, do do you think you want to start your own company and getting a feel for that? And then of course, if it's not a five-year goal, but a three-month goal, checking in on that, documenting it, looking, so you can look back and say, okay, like, here's, here's what you wanted to work on for three months. Like, how do you think you did? And then providing feedback on, on what we perceived or what I perceived as, as going well or still possibly needing improvement. So I don't think that's necessarily any different, whether it's a remote team or or in person, like you can have these conversations over over mm-hmm. Zoom. And in some ways, maybe it's even better because you have to, to plan for it, you have to schedule it. Whereas if you're working in the same office, it can be easy to just give quick feedback and then never follow up on it again, which immediate feedback is good too. But as far as documenting, I've said that word a lot, but yeah, you, you've got you've to know, okay, where we're going and, and did we reach the goals that we set? And that's hard to do without documentation because your mind can only hold so much stuff and then you start forgetting things. Hmm. But the remote aspect is, is hard, I think, to evaluate technical performance if you don't have someone on the team that that can really evaluate. And so we have a very complicated or I shouldn't say complicated, complex and robust back end. And so we've leaned very heavily on someone who is actually overseas and has a lot of experience in architecture and and database management and, and all this. So it's good to have kind of a leader that you can lean on overseas as well if you are remote. And so that's that's been really helpful for us. Yeah, I jumped in there because I just, I, I think you're right. I think documentation is so key. I think just the act of writing something down too is very valuable because, you know, when we have these ideas in our heads, they're, again, hard to put your finger on. It's just a concept. It's it's hard to describe. But when you have to describe it by writing it down, then people can get on the same page. You can agree or disagree. But when you kind of have these ideas in your head that, you know, nobody can really look into that. That's not transparent. So I'd say documentation is key. And then organization of documentation is also another challenge. But if you can hire someone to that loves to do that, that, that would be great. You know, so it's interesting because so much work conversation and communication happens on Slack now. Mm-hmm. And I, I know you can search through it and it, it can store everything, but it's not organized at all. So it'll be interesting to see mm-hmm. how, how this is meant to be kind of ephemeral. And it's not like it's not quite Snapchat, but it, it's a little bit like Snapchat for, <laughs> for work conversation in that you probably aren't going to find it again four months from now. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes the documentation and, and where things are stored. Because if you're giving someone feedback on Slack, you know, that's, that's tough to look back, you know, six months, six months ago and say, Oh, I, I know we talked about this, but can't quite find it. Yeah, I guess uh, 
the the rule I think of or the adage is like a, a place for everything and everything in its place. It's hard to just do things on Slack because yeah, it, it's a mess and it's all just kind of chronological. It's hard to go back and find anything effectively. On the subject of uh, evaluating performance, say you have an employee that maybe is not performing up to par. How do you go about motivating them in this remote setting? Well, first, I think you need to understand whether it is a motivation problem. And so you can suss that out in a, in a conversation and highlighting, hey, hey, here's what we think is going on. You tell us if we're wrong and let's figure out how to fix this. And if it doesn't improve, then, then maybe it is a motivational problem. But we've also had problems just uh, it's not always easy, even if you do have good technical tests, to really know for sure if someone's going to be completely capable or, or maybe the, the scope has changed and they need to do more and they're just not capable of it. So we just have conversations. I know this sounds really simple, but have conversations and, and try to get to the root of the problem and then have a a set time period for requirements for what you think needs to improve and a timeline for achieving those. And if it doesn't work, it's time to move on. So one thing that I feel like this was stressed a lot at the GSB was hire slow and, and fire fast. And people that would come in, built very successful businesses, it seems like they always regretted not letting someone go sooner you know, they mm. might try and ignore it for a little while, hope it gets better. Maybe then they have a conversation and they're still hoping, hey, maybe this will... It's hard to have these, you're not doing your job conversations. So it, people tend to avoid them, I think, if they can. But mm -hmm. something that professors and guest speakers hit on again and again was like, once we made the call and we let that person go, I wish I'd done it six months earlier. Because if someone's failing they know it too. It's usually not a surprise. And mm -hmm. in the long run, it's better for them anyway to be in a situation where they can succeed and, and not feel like garbage all the time. So I guess there's exceptions. Most people want to be good at their jobs and perform well. So this just goes back to setting realistic goals and, and having tough conversations if you have to. So on the topic of performance, the next question is similar, but it's, it's more about talent and growth. Raw talent only gets you so far in life. What are your plans regarding developing your remote team and actually taking a developer and making them a senior developer? Or similarly, how do you plan to develop your remote team? I guess we've kind of already just uh, organically done that. When I talk about uh, the leader that we have on our on our backend development team, they've really filled that role and they came in very capable. It wasn't like a day one thing, like hey, I'm I'm the most experienced and and I'm in charge. But I guess we got lucky in in having someone that grew into that role kind of organically, and and I think um, that speaks to having someone that takes the initiative and maybe maybe faced adversity before and has has worked on a team that's that struggled, but you can kind of start to feel when everyone else looks to them as, as kind of uh, the guide and wants to, to get their approval for a job well done as well. So I wouldn't say that we um, are always going to be expanding forever and definitely our remote team. We've, we've started hiring here in, in California as well. So it'll be for us, it'll be more about making sure we maintain both our, our well-functioning, remote team and a team that is 
co-located sort of, I guess, in the Bay Area here now that we're all working remote anyways. But making sure that these teams don't see themselves as, as separate teams and are really just the same team in different time zones and locations, but making sure we do a good job of maintaining that sort of one team feeling. Uh, last question here from me. Typically, the question is, if you could go back five years and give yourself a piece of advice, what would that? What would you tell yourself? I'm going to up the ante, make it a little more challenging on you, and we're going to do like a Back to the Future. You have your, you get to choose when you get to go back to, and and what you get to say to yourself. At what point in time would you go back to <laughs> go back to to give yourself some advice on running your company and, and improving things? Well, just in the in the context of our of our company, I'd probably go back just two years ago when we first started, and and try to find maybe even a third co-founder on that had a lot of experience in sales. Because I I say you know my first experience in in sales was trying to sell democracy in, in Afghanistan, and so it's like in some ways a much tougher sell. It's also very different. And the situation is very different. So having someone on the founding team that's that sold enterprise software before would have accelerated our trajectory. And I think I think that a lot of folks maybe well, it's this case, it's this way at the GSB. I think sales gets a bad rap. It's, it gets a bad reputation, maybe or sub reputation of of not being very academic, and there's not as much research done on it versus something like marketing. But uh, you've got to be able to sell. So that, that experience and the techniques that you learn through actually doing it and, and bringing a customer through the buying journey, you can go through the graduate school business and never take a class on sales. Luckily, I did take a couple, but I think I took almost every one that was available. So it, it would have been nice to, uh, would have been wise, I think, to have someone with more practical experience on the founding team. Yep. Got to be able to sell in business and in life. Okay. Well, this has been a great conversation, Jordan. Uh, if the listener is interested in learning more about ClearLaw, how do they do that? And then what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, you can reach me at jordan at clearlaw.ai. And you can check our website out at, at clearlaw.ai. And you can also look for us on the Microsoft Word App Source store. So we're we're high, heavily integrated with Microsoft. Um, and that's another way to, to find us through there their add-in store. Thanks for thanks for having me on. This has been fun. Yeah, it's it's been great. Sounds like we're going to end it there. If you like the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating. Jordan, this is a great episode. Thanks for teaching me a little bit more about how you build teams and I'm excited to see what you guys do in the coming years. All right. Great to meet you. Thanks. Yeah.